Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Just I, you, talking up the dresses and everything. I feel like I, I feel like it's almost a letdown to be in the jumpsuit. Not, not at like, all. It's like a different. I yeah, feel like you have different personas to your it's to all. your aesthetic, and that's one of the things I love about you. Because I always wear all black, but when you you are like you have all these different ways of expressing yourself, and that's one of the things I love about you. As Mama Ru would say, we're all born naked, and the rest is dry. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. I did just for you guys. Have a backup plan. Oh! Oh my god! Oh my god! This is just me wearing a gay. And a Facebook audience will get a full. Yay! A hundred percent gayer. Oh my god. Yay! High death. High death. There we go. They are glitter matches. Secret realness. No, I feel very underdressed. I know, right? And usually you have harnesses on too. I know, right? I just have a duct tape bra. I feel really out of place tonight. Oh my god, this is amazing. I love you. That was great. What a fantastic reveal. I know it. Reveal. It's been. It's been trademarked. You stole my look, man. See, when you asked what I was doing for summer. That's what I was doing for the I, you know, Same. I kind of like <laughs> So when did you start experimenting with different aesthetics and looks? So I've always been a person that's been interested in fashion. Um, it is a bit of a, a bit of a long story because, of, you know, part of my situation is that I was married to a woman for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And so prior to coming out, you know, my fashion was very limited to, you know, what was sort of in the boy world, obviously. Right. Um, I don't really see fashion as gender now. Right. But at the time, it was like, okay, well, if you're going to pass as a straight guy, you kind of have to act the part. And so I did. But I still was like, 
fully into that type of fashion, so you know, I was always you know sh sharply dressed. Once I came out of the world, and you know, the sort of golden rainbow doors opened, it was like, oh shit, like there's so much more stuff beyond the realm of, you know, what I had access to before that I just, I, I was like, kind of, I, and kind of, I was, and kind of still am like a kid in a candy shop. I just want to try everything. And that's just kind of my deal anyways. I just, I, I'm obsessed with fetish. Like, I'm not into a bunch of fetishes, but I just like to, like, see how they work and and sort of be there and participate because how am I going to know if I like something if I don't? Amen. And um, in, my, um, in my living room, I have a giant poster. Um, it's from this radical queer book, and it's of a picture of a guy in... He's like a construction worker, but he's wearing a dress, and it says, you know, you can learn more in a day from wearing a dress than from... Uh, you know, from opening a toolbox or something along those lines. And it's always just sort of stuck with me because I feel like having that freedom to sort of explore yourself and explore your personality, um, it opens you up to sort of reinvigorate your imagination. Absolutely. The first time I ever saw Xavier um, was at the punchline. And I was late, of course, always. <laughs> and I walk in and you were on stage in that dress and you looked like a movie star with the gloves and everything. And I was like, <gasps> where is this exquisite creature behind you? You know, and we got to become friends and I just think you are just, I just love you and I appreciate you very much. And I'm so thankful that you are in our community. So I feel like you make everything just better. So thank you. And thank, thank you for being on the show too. Thank you so much. That means a lot. You know, uh, originally, the thing that the the main well, first of all, I love wearing dresses. Mm -hmm. So getting you're so good at it. Getting <laughs> getting the opportunity, like I I like it for my own personal reasons. Like I like the attention of it, so to speak. Yeah. But at the same time, I also have a very thick skin. You know, based on like my whole history and my life. And so I feel this sort of ability to be able to be this person that is, to some extent, you know, straight men and other people may have had an experience where they've seen, you know, drag or these other situations or the more that people, um, you know, sort of become accustomed to uh, seeing trans people or knowing trans people in their right. lives. Um, but there's still that other piece where it's like uh, one of uh, my good friends, her son, just loves wearing dresses. Mm -hmm. And he's like five. So is he gay? Is he trans? Nobody fucking knows. And, but he loves wearing dresses and she wants him to be, feel comfortable. So she gets to show him pictures of like, this is okay. Like adults do this too. So I feel like I have a thick enough skin to be the first person that somebody sees doing it so that... If they're going to pick on somebody, they're going to pick on me, and I'll put them in their fucking place. And then that way, the next time they see someone, they'll think twice about it, and that person who might not have had the thicker skin doesn't have to go through that bullshit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And what's really crazy is I walk around with that feeling, but nobody ever says shit to me because I'm a six foot fucking one. 280-pound guy in a dress. Like, what are you going to say? <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> no, and there, there is some power to that. And, you know, you bring out how you present yourself and walk around with confidence. Like, as a writer, 
I've spent so much time coming up and crafting responses to people who say ugly shit. Because I have a lot of friends who get harassed and all that. Nobody says shit to me. And it doesn't, you know, and again, I think it's partly being tall and being bigger and being able to present yourself because they're afraid I'll back up. And, you're and I look badass. Every time I see you, I'm just like, oh my god, what are you wearing now? You're magical. But I'm like, I have so many good things written in my head that come back and I never have to. But yeah, I, I do think there's a power to that. And then people say, okay, well, we're going to leave that alone and just let that exist in the world, but it'll let other people see that it's okay, which is fantastic. Yeah. And I think that it getting to present it in the world of comedy, I come out, I almost never talk about what I'm wearing. Mm -hmm. Very rarely. It's just, it is what I'm wearing because I'm, I feel like it would take something away from it. If I have to come out and explain what I'm doing, right. it takes away, it takes away from the fact that I'm presenting it just, this is normal. And so I think it also helps people to become as, as soon as I start actually doing comedy, they forget about what I'm wearing because it doesn't matter. And once they've forgotten and they've made that like cognizant, like what he's matter, what he is wearing does not matter based on what he's performing. Mm -hmm. Then it just, things just go smoothly from that point on. Exactly. Exactly. So you mentioned that you were married to a woman came out later in life. Um, were you aware you were gay? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah? Yeah, it was a. Uh, uh, so you trying to to like so you knew at an early age and you're just trying to fight it, or did you actually know as you got older? It is. It's. It's a. It's a. It's a wild tale. But basically, um, I knew I was gay. She knew I was gay, and um, at a very young age, we decided that we would both just ignore the fact that we both knew I was gay mm -hmm. and like try and make it work because we were, we, we were best friends, you know, oh. at the, in high school and, um, you know, prefrontal cortex being completely developed and such. So I tried to bring it up throughout the time we were married for 15 years. So throughout this time, this was brought up again and again. And um, we just sort of kept sweeping it under the rug. I mean, uh, under the rug, uh, sweeping it under the rug also. <laughs> but uh, eventually, it just it got to a point where I was like, neither of us are going to live our best lives if we continue in this shit show. And also, you know, I feel pretty certain that had I been straight, the marriage still would have ended. It just things we had grown apart like the marriage was over regardless of what the reason was but at the time it was just the catalyst wow and so now you're out now what <laughs> now you're enjoying gay life um how has it changed like coming out how has it changed your relationship with your own body well that is a great question because I have actually gained 80 pounds since I came out. Okay. And so I sort of had, I think subconsciously I knew that I was in this like metamorphosis period where I was going to come out. I never actually thought that like cognizantly, but I think in the back of my head it was there and I was exercising and et cetera and, and sort of like building my mental fortitude for this moment. And then as soon as it happened, I immediately needed 
that sort of shelter and comfort that my weight provides me. And so over the course of the next couple of years, I, I gained most of that weight back. But it has actually been sort of a kind of a neat journey, I think, because it was very easy for me to feel sexy and hot at my lowest adult weight, which is what I was at when I came out. Um, gaining the weight back has been a lesson in loving my body no matter what it looks like, and also has been the catalyst for me to explore some of those fetish areas like the bear community and, you know, which it makes me sad sometimes that there are like, you know, I was 20th century, you guys know what that word means, yeah. but like young, hot, sexy, thin, long-haired white guys that will never experience the love of that type of a community because they are so loving and embracing of everybody in every size. It just doesn't, it doesn't matter. And, you know, people are like, if you know, if you lose weight, you won't be a bear anymore. And I'm like, no, I'm I will always be a bear because a bear is who you are, not what you look like. So that's how I But there, there is that in the different gay communities, there are aesthetics that go with different communities and there's pressure to look one way or another. As there is in any community. And see, I didn't know that. I just figured, like, once somebody came out gay, that as a community, you guys were like, cool, let's go. You know, all this cool stuff. So I thought, no, but that's, we are my, about to judge that's my ignorance, though, because yeah. I really thought that, you know, once you got over that fucking hurdle, okay, the rest of it, we're okay now. So I didn't realize that you guys... Like, the first time I found out that guys can have eating disorders, I was like, what? Yeah. Guys can have eating disorders? So, no. so pervasive in the gay community. See, and I didn't know that because you guys always, in my world, the way that gay men have always been for me were the people that knew everything. They knew everything about sex. They knew everything about fashion. They knew about culture. They knew about literature. And these were the people that you went to. I didn't have like a strong family background, so I always just my gays were the people that gave me family and gave me the education. Like the first person I ever told me about how to put a condom on guy was a gay guy. So I was like, I didn't know you could do it with your mouth. That's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, so for me, that's why I just I'm intrigued when I find that somebody that has gone through that still has to face other bullshit stuff which it's like dude let's just enjoy each other i mean you know i am i am frequently i, I get sort of not ostracized but i do not necessarily relate super well to the gay community i think partially just because of the fact that i was married to a woman that's like already a strike against me so in the gay community, you know, there's the gold star days, which is a term that I wish would just fucking roll over and die. But that means like you've never touched a woman, you've never, and those people generally have a higher, you know, viewpoint of themselves than others. And then there, it's, it's, it's really sad. But the the way that gay men relate to women generally is what you're describing. But that ends with women. And it's just completely toxic, you know, 80% of the time within the gay community. And that's why it's so important for people that, you know, they're able to find their sort of niche communities, like the leather community, or, you know what I mean? There, there are families for everybody out there, 
but you have to be able to find yours. And I don't necessarily know that even as a skinny person, I would have found the bear community, which is where I do feel at home. So I kind of feel lucky to have gained the weight, even though I don't plan on being heavy forever. I know it's not, and and you guys can testify that you know it's it's definitely not healthy. Not you're not perfect, really, but obviously health conditions. <laughs> but I mean. <laughs> What's your go-to munchie? Oh man, I was thinking about this the whole time. I'm like kind of a, I'm kind of a salty guy, so I would say something probably like. Mm. Yummy <laughs> 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 noises from the audience. I like, uh, like, like potato, uh, tortilla chips and guacamole, maybe, or like oh, chips yeah. and salsa, something. So a friend, I fucking love French fries. Oh, McDonald's specific, specifically. Okay, can we disagree that in and outs French fries are trash? They're disgusting. They, they are. They just take the they take the cardboard boxes that the meat comes in, shred them, deep fry yeah, it. It's not potatoes that they're shredding. That's just that's just magic. I don't know. Magic. <laughs> yeah. The, I don't know if did you guys did you see the LA Times food critic review of In N Out Burger? It was like their French fries are disgusting and everybody just needs to fucking Amen. So, what is speaking of of discussing? What is the (laughs) worst advice you've ever gotten? Well, you know, we we sort of hinted at it, but as I came out um, and was coming out, there were just a multitude of people that had thoughts on, you know, how I could live my life. And I think the worst piece was like, you're gay, you know that, just stay married, and like have a, do a thing. And I was like, I'm not gonna fucking do a thing. And also, shut up, and also my own fucking business. That's so weird. It is very weird. Unless they just like, cause you know, it's better for benefits, for, you know. I think that actually, well that, and I think like that. We're gonna discount on our insurance. <laughs> I was like, mm, I, so, <laughs> discount on insurance. Yeah. No, so quick aside, I was married to a woman for yes. like, well, <laughs> Like, I was like, yes. Uh, but right. that's why I figured that right. this needed to happen because, you know, yeah. it people don't know that you can change and have a different life. But so <laughs> It's I a was, novel idea for some people. I was married to her. I've had a horrible time getting decent health care. Um, she came out straight after we divorced. She was a gold star lesbian and then came out as hetero. Um, and then... <laughs> yeah, everyone's like, it goes I didn't know you could go the other way. <laughs> I didn't either. I saw it change on her profile on FetLife. So I'm like, what the fuck? Um, what kind of men did she like? Tell them. Gay men? Blind guys. Uh, blind? Is that with an I or an O? I. Oh, okay. Blind? Yeah. So. <laughs> Where does that fit in the rainbow? <laughs> What's the but I couldn't get good health insurance. So she called me and she said, well, we can get remarried because I work for the federal government and you can have the benefits. And I'm like, you know how bad your health has to be when your ex-wife who's now straight calls to get you remarried to give you benefits? Like, one, I'm really grateful for the love. But, yeah, I, I no, no. Staying yeah. married in those situations for the benefits, no. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, what's one thing everybody should try once in a lifetime? I would say having a garment made for them, custom to their body, because it is a very, like, 
liberating and also it just feels so amazing to know like this thing was made for me and a lot of the time and I'm talking about adults too because I know like grandmas and stuff make clothes for their kids a lot but or moms you know people that sew but for those people that are not in that you know type of a life compound quarter yeah yeah getting something made specifically like a dress or a or a you know a leather vest or something that's made just for them exactly and lastly what are you grateful for oh what aren't i grateful for i mean um i'm grateful for i'm grateful for the fact that i to finally have the opportunity to come out. I mean, that was, that's like, I mean, that's like kind of like the go-to. Um, but, you know, I'm grateful that I, you know, got back into doing comedy after a really long hiatus. I'm glad to have made, you know, so many wonderful friends like Wendy and other people in the community. I'm grateful for being invited to be here tonight. Um, I'm grateful for, you know, being the guy who can be on stage wearing a dress and, and I'm just grateful to be alive. That's fantastic. And last... for death. Dick is good Amen. <laughs> Amen. Church. Church. Amen. <laughs> I will be on my knees saying thank you for that all night. Um, that's why I was crying when you set the rainbow dildo on fire. I was like, why are you setting why are you setting my presence on fire? That's mean. <laughs> so if our, our audience wants to find you, if they want to see you perform, if they want to connect with you online, where do we go? Uh, probably the best place to find me is on Instagram at the Comedy Bear, and I post when I'm having shows, when I'm doing stuff on there. Yeah. You can also see me in my wonderful outfits and some of the delicious things that I'm doing. Yes, you have a great team. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was wonderful to connect with you. Welcome back to Fat Chicks on Top, and we're back with Xavier Bettencourt. We're catching up after two and a half years. Uh, the last time Xavier was on the show was actually the first time I met him, and he is still fabulous, even more fabulous than before. He is a definitely a genderqueer icon in Sacramento. So I wanted to say hi, and how have you been? Oh, you know, living this uh, Pandini dream for the past two years has, uh, has been a real exciting chapter in the life. And uh, I'm, I'm starting to, you know, see that maybe people are like going back outside and doing stuff again. So I'm, I'm looking forward to joining them soon. Just uh, I'm going to make sure none of them drop first before I go out. Let, uh, let other people test the waters. Exactly. Well, and right before everything got shut down, you had just launched a new venture, Planet Queer. And you were doing performances for, for queer folk of every ilk. And then it got shut down. So do you want to talk a little bit about that venture and whether or not you'll be bringing it back? Yeah, that is, that's a great question. And one that uh, I too have been thinking a lot about literally, I think it was two weeks before the pandemic kicked off. We had our fundraising extravaganza premiere of the event in here in Sacramento. It was a blast. It was, it was a, Huge success. We had a great turnout. Everything went well. We raised a lot of money. The uh, The point of this whole wingding is, one, to create a, a different type of queer environment here in Sacramento for people, uh, something that doesn't involve necessarily a focus on drinking or, or, you know, being out in a club. And especially because there's a lot of 
more people that lean more on the queer side that don't feel as comfortable in those spaces that are sort of dominated by gay men. So we created this, we, there was a drag comedy storytelling. It was really fantastic as well as visual arts. We had some really amazing visual arts from Sacramento and the Bay area lend us art so that we could put a sort of a gallery together for everyone and show off some of the amazing queer art talent we have in Sacramento. So We launched it, we raised a good amount of money, and then the pandemic hit and we realized this event was really designed and focused around being a in-person event. So making the shift towards uh, online event didn't really seem to make sense, especially with the focus on the different types of performing arts and visual arts that we had. So we decided, I decided actually, that I would just put it on the back burner I have a garage full of queer art, or queer queer space paraphernalia. Then I'm still wearing my queer space hat and my queer space shirt. And um, just sort of waiting to see, you know, I want to give it probably another 30 days before I make a final decision. But I am leaning towards bringing it back in some fashion. I'm just not exactly sure that it's going to look the same or feel the same as it did at that premiere. I did want to mention that of the money that we earned in that fundraiser, knowing that we weren't going to be able to go forward, all of it has actually been returned to queer artists via all of the art, some of the artists that performed at the show. We paid them additional extra, especially because a lot of them don't have quote unquote day jobs. They make their living off of being artists. So they were hit really hard. And then we also funded some other really cool artists and their projects as well until we ran that money down thinking it wasn't a huge amount of money it was around i think $2200 total enough to get our project off the ground you know it would have been plenty if we continued but since we knew we weren't going to be able to continue we thought we thought for a few months we decided to just return it and start over fresh and so we'll be doing that um, when the time is right but the good news is we have all the infrastructure already Lots of people came forward that want to help in the future. That was a a big win for me, finding out how many people wanted to be a part of this thing going forward. So yeah, so that's kind of where we are now. I'll I'll be making a final decision probably in the near future, but I'm leaning towards it'll it'll happen in some way, just not sure how. When you were putting the project together, a big driving force of it was to create kind of an alternative space for the queer community. When you're envisioning that beyond just the performers and the artists that you have involved with it, what did you want that space to manifest? What did you want to bring to the the queer community that you hadn't seen? That's a great question. So one, I wanted a space where there was an environment where people could actually interact with each other. So before the uh, performing art portion started, we have the open gallery. So there's a lot of like opportunity for people to mingle and meet each other. And then the same thing kind of happened afterwards. And what I really like about it is it's an organic opportunity. And there's a lot of people from different walks of life that might not interact with each other sort of in the day-to-day that get to meet someone new. One thing that I probably will do is find ways to encourage that interaction. But the other thing is just an affordable space for people to participate in queer art. I find that either it's either, I feel like queer people deserve sort of fabulous spaces to inhibit 
um, whatever their socioeconomic status or walk of life is. And there, there, I've seen some good queer art spaces, but it's definitely, it's not uh, what I would consider to be like medium to high end because those spaces are sometimes cost prohibitive to people. I want to sort of level the playing field. So we had plans for a, um, a sliding scale, you know, ticket cost to make sure that everybody could afford to attend and trying to promote queer equality across the board. So nobody gets better, more attention than others with the caveat that our focus really was on spotlighting female and POC performers and also bringing equality to the table and transparency to the table when it comes to paying those folks. I have to say that I was really saddened and shocked with some of the conversations that I had with some of these female and 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 non-binary actually as well and POC performers where people just flat out weren't paying them. Like they would see someone hand their fellow performer a check and then just not make eye contact and walk off or promise, you know, you're going to make this much and then say, oh, we didn't make enough tonight. So we're cutting your, your price in half after the fact or just, or just offer them less initially than one of their, you know, counterparts at the same sort of performing level that they are. And I think that is a lot of bullshit. And I want to make sure that, you know, anything that has my name on it or that I'm attached to has that transparency and has that, has that e- equality, but almost it's, it's kind of leaning more towards making sure that the focus and the spotlight is on, on, you know, the POC, the female and the non-binary performers. So if, if I can book more of them and get them on the show, I will do so. If there's extra money to be spent, it will be spent in the, on those folks because we need to kind of make up for lost time, especially in the comedy and performing arts worlds. You bring up a good point is, and, and you're a performer in multiple facets. It can be hard to determine as a performer what to ask for and determine what you're worth when you do a show. So as a performer, when you're going out and you're just different capacities, how do you decide what is a reasonable rate for you to charge for a show? That's a great question. It's a tough question. And, you know, just like, you know, I I work in a professional sort of day job environment and it's, it's still looked down upon to kind of discuss what you make. And I feel like that is the same way in the performing arts community as well. But I think the more we talk about it and the more performers share with each other, especially when it comes to ongoing events, you know, one-off things are a little tighter. If it's something that's charitable and that I feel like is an organization that I want to support, I am much more likely to take less money or no money because I would rather that money be going towards the the folks that it's helping. If it is a for-profit show, I'm probably going to ask a few people that have done the show before what they asked for and what they got. And then compare myself as to where, you know, my level as a performing artist is compared to them. Uh, And, you know, like in the stand-up realm, I'm a little newer. If I was doing improv or sketch, I would charge more. If I'm hosting, I'll charge more because that requires a lot more work. But yeah, I would, it generally will come down to, uh, to talking to some folks that have participated in that before. But what I would encourage is 
everybody just start talking about how much you're making and also calling out the people who are not paying what they should be and not doing those shows. I mean, just like we, you know, we vote with our dollars, so to speak, we can, we can make or break shows by whether or not we show up and we all have value as performers and it doesn't make sense to, you know, there's a lot of memes and jokes around, you know, I can't pay rent with exposure, but yet people continue to do those shows for exposure because, you know, they want the exposure. They want, you know, to, to make, uh, to be a presence in the scene. But if we continue to do that, it just, especially for people in my situation, you know, the, the bearded, the tall bearded white male comic, the more we continue to participate in those things, the more the trickle down impacts the people that aren't in the demographic that I am, where it makes things way easier. I think one of the things we're going to see too, is as everything starts to reopen, performers, we have been without a big chunk of our income for several years now. And it's, it's, while we've had burst of performances we can do, some of us were able to go online and do some performances, that in-person performance money, which is usually more than you get when you do it online, has dried up. And a lot of us didn't, if you are a performer, if you do gig economy, you couldn't claim unemployment. So for there's a huge number of us who are really hurting for cash right now. And I think there is a push to undercut one another because you want the gig. So if somebody at your level is also asking, you find out, okay, everybody's asking for 250 for the show, I'll do it for 200 How do we prevent that race to the bottom just so we get some cash coming back in? We do this. We, we create the shows and the pay that we want. The good news is, is that because things haven't been in person, there's so many opportunities to create whatever you want now. You know, one of my favorite stories is about Rodney Dangerfield. Nobody wanted to book Rodney Dangerfield. He was such a shitty comedian. Nobody liked him. So he just created his own comedy club and he booked whoever the hell he wanted. And he became, you know, one of the most beloved comedic performers of the 19, you know, 1980s. And I use that model. I don't, I mean, not specifically for how I build things myself, but I use it in in the thought process of, And honestly, when it came to queer space, there just wasn't anything that resembled what I wanted here in Sacramento. So I decided to just take a hand at at trying to create it. And it's not that hard. And if if you're a trustworthy person and you have a reputation for being someone that's fun and easy to work with, and, you know, you, you cut the checks at the end of the night, that's all it takes. So I think the solution to, you know, avoiding the race to the bottom, honestly, is creating the show ourselves from the top down so that we get control over those things. Yeah, no, it's a big it's a big thing. And performance, it's not everybody is open to talking about what they charge and what their their rates are and all of that. There has been a push in the kink education world to disclose it. And if you can't take a gig or if somebody is looking to take a gig that you've done before, to be very open about this is what they paid, these are the percentages, this is what's on the green sheet and what they covered. And it's really the only way to create any type of transparency because if an event thinks they can get you for less, they're going to try and get you for less. It, It behooves them, right? They make more money at the end of the night. So the more we've got to talk about it and be honest about this is what we're paying, this is what we're bringing in. And 
I think for a lot of us, it takes a while to get comfortable being that open and honest about finances, especially when a show doesn't do well. And you're like, yeah, we only pulled in $300 in ticket sales. I mean, that can, it hurts when you see that on the page, but then to tell somebody else that, right. It can be like, "Ah." no, I completely agree. And I kind of made the decision going into mine that, you know, the last the last pocket that gets anything is mine. And, and my plan was to never actually take any income from Queer Space. I had, I had at the time actually other projects in the work that have also since uh, gone by the wayside. But in that space, I think making sure that the performers get paid first, you know, you, I think people take it, I think because you and I at least are in, in the community scenes of these spaces more less so than the, you know, ultra professional spaces for the most part, although you're in some of those spaces that I'm not, but I think that we need to still treat it like that professional environment. If you tell someone, I mean, like this should be a contractual obligation upfront. There's no, Oh, we didn't make as much. This is, you told me you were paying me 50 bucks. Where's the check? No, I I completely agree with you in that. In creating this, part of the conversations we had around you creating this space was the drag scene in Sacramento. Uh, You want to talk about that? And you want to talk about uh, our new friend, Miss Dolly Poppers? So the drag scene in Sacramento is, is great. I mean, there are a lot of really great committed performers and there's a lot of people who have been working diligently to keep the scene alive, especially through the pandemic. I think it's, you know, one of the things that I'm working on this year is, is not being self-righteous that I will be completely transparent and say there were some decisions in the drag scene that I questioned, but that at the end of the day, I, the, the, the only control I have is to not participate myself, and I didn't. But I also know that those same people where I feel like, oh, I've been pretty judgmental, I realize kept a movement going that I wasn't going to participate in myself. And so I do, I think I've retroactively gained some respect for those people, even though I'm not sure that the, the means were the way that I would have done it. But what I've also seen is, already a reemergence of the, you know, kind of drag stuff happening in Sacramento. And so I know that there's the open mics are coming back and, you know, all of, all of the Sacramento favorites are still out there doing their thing. And I, I think for the most part, some of it never even stopped. One of my goals for 2021 was to do drag for the first time. I have always been a big admirer of drag and I love sort of my queer femme side at times. And so I thought that would be just a really fun way to dig into it. And as a performing artist, it was something that scared me because I had never really dipped my toe into it. Um, And I learned a lot. I learned it's way harder than it looks. I learned it's very expensive. And I learned that... I love being cinched and corseted, and I can thank you for that. Auntie Vice was the first person ever to cinch me up and a corset, and I have to say these titties looked fantastic. Big, big hairy titties. They were amazing. Uh, but they looked great. And uh, yeah, so I did I did a, a on an online, 
I did an online course. It's not a correspondence course for drag. I had been looking for an opportunity to learn some stuff about drag. And I came across somebody who was promoting an online kind of drag 101 class. And so I signed up for it and it was really fun. It was a lot less about the technical side of drag and a lot about you know, just kind of finding your persona. And in 2021, I think that was a great time for me to explore that and just see, you know, where all of this was coming from. And also the class had people from all over the United States in it. And I made some really cool friends. It it became, I think it was six weeks. And I think by week three, it was less of a class about drag and more of just like an hour and a half group therapy session where we all just kind of, you know, talked about life and and what we were doing. And we still continued to, you know, progress our skills, but a lot more of the time was just spent talking about, you know, how we were doing. And I think that a, ye- a good year into the pandemic, some socialization and some like-minded people to talk to was really beneficial for me. And I know for a lot of the other people in the class. And then from there, I started just doing some kind of, I call it like backyard drag. I know some people call it, you know, bedroom drag and taking, putting on some looks and, you know, going and hanging out with my neighbors. And I, it was so much fun. I'm, I have a passion for like uh, vintage fashion and thrifting. And so it's right up my alley to find those outfits and stuff. And, and then this, I ended up having an opportunity to participate for a couple weeks in this drag competition type situation in San Francisco that was live. It was in that brief window where people were like, oh, oh, COVID's over. Like we get to do stuff again. And then it immediately shut down again. But in the, I actually got to participate for a couple of weeks and I had so much fun. I got to do my first live show in drag, in the Castro, in San Francisco at Midnight Sun. And I have to, I mean, like I will do drag again, but if I never did drag again, I got to do it the best way I could. I also learned uh, I mean, I practiced my ass off. I'm very competitive and I kind of did want to win. I did not. And I fell like four times. I think I showed you the video. I fell, my wig came off. I was a real hot fucking mess, but I loved every minute of it. I kept getting back up every time I fell. So that was, that was what was important to me. And I learned, you know, I didn't just like any other performing art, you can't freak out and, you know, run away. But it was a really it was a really good time. And I look forward to having more opportunities to do some drag. One thing I did learn was that I'm not exactly sure yet that the traditional drag, like the lip sync, um, you know, kind of dancing is really my scene. So I'm I'm letting that program run in the background to see what other opportunities might be out there to, to just perform in drag. Cause I love the I love the look. I love the I love the you know, the energy, but the, the lip sync and dance piece, I'm not sure is, is my favorite. So we'll see. Very cool. Did doing drag change the way you relate to your own body? Well, that's a good question. A lot of things have changed the way that I look at my body since COVID hit, you know, if people go back and for, you know, 
you know, I've, I've always been very body positive. I consider myself a bear, you know, big, hairy guy. And I do love that about myself. But it is easy in a world of, of um, desired, you know, white male gay gaze perfection to not become self-conscious at some point. And, uh, you know, social media has a big influence in it. And even things like Drag Race have a big influence when you see the, the especially in, in the American Drag Race, the emphasis on, you know, femininity, quote unquote, fishiness, uh, you know, female impersonation skills, which is not my ballywick by any means, you know, it can take a toll on the self-esteem. I also learned, you know, one of the things that isn't necessarily proven, but, you know, got me at least worried enough to get a little bit of control over it was the fear that like, you know, people with pre-existing health conditions, you know, in the weight situation range um, have a harder time with COVID. So I lost some weight and I was kind of worried about it actually um, because I liked the idea of being in drag as a big person. But what I, what, one of the fun side effects was, you know, being a little looser in the body. And I think we talked about this a little bit before um, when I got corseted, man, it pushed everything to the exactly right spaces. And I, I've always, I'm very comfortable with, my gender. I don't really, I mean, I consider myself a gay man, but a genderqueer dresser, you know, fashion wise, but I really loved the look of my body in the corset and, and being able to see the hips and the boobs. And I thought it was really fun. I, I've never looked in the mirror and had such a good time just laughing out loud at the change, instantaneous change, but it is so fun. I would say, I, I would say to anybody, like, if you just want to see a fun, immediate transformation of your body, have someone strap you into a corset and you will definitely love it. It's amazing. And it's powerful. When you're, you're strapped in, it feels supportive. It's like getting a giant hug. It's like getting a giant hug and a back brace. <laughs> and it's like my posture's improved. And it's up. You know what yep. I mean? Yep. Yeah. I, I had a really interesting, uh, fun side story. When I went to San Francisco to go do that drag show, I was uh, outside of my car and my partner was coursing me up, you know, hands, hands on the door frame, you know, and, he, and he's basically got his, his leg on my back, you know, pulling these strings. And this little, little queer boy walks by and he's like, you're not doing that right. <laughs> and my partner goes, uh, what? And he's like, let me help. And he like steps in and starts tightening. I mean, like you are a very fast lacer and he's just like tug, tug. And I was like, um, we, both me and my partner were astounded. And we were like, do you do drag? And he's like, no, I'm just a corset aficionado. And he lifts up his shirt and he has a corset on. It's just, he has a little like 12 inch waist. I was like, oh my gosh, it's, it was I know that we never really know what people's, you know, secrets are, what their life is outside of their normal life. But if somebody had told me, like, if this guy lifts up his shirt, he's going to be wearing a black lace corset, I would have put five against it. And he was. So it was, but it was also one of those moments of just like queer united where it was like, you got a show to do. We got to make sure you look good. And he literally laced me up and then just kept walking. Just talk about queer boy joy right there. Just 
and then you both go on your way happy. That's wonderful. Yeah, it was really fun. So with Queer Space coming to a decision in the next month or so, are you doing any other performing right now or is everything still waiting to see how we open up again? Everything is kind of waiting to see how we open up again. I have been, you know, I, as always, adding kind of to my collection of, of material, especially comedy material for if that opportunity arises again. It was really interesting to, uh, you know, to explore the stand-up scene. And I'm a big proponent of try anything and see how it goes. And I think that... Many of us, especially in in my generation, which is kind of the, I'm on the old side of being a millennial. I'm not really a millennial. I'm whatever the one up from them is, but I'm kind of near the middle. That we had parents that were like, you're going to do one thing and you're going to fucking like it, whether it's, you know, soccer or whatever it is. And we're dissuaded from just trying stuff that sounds fun to us whether it was for cost or for, you know, they didn't think we had the attention span, who knows. So now I just want to try everything I can. And, and so being in the stand-up space was really interesting. It was also, you know, like drag, something that I realized was a lot harder of work than I expected it to be, but I really enjoy it. And so I'm not exactly sure the things that I enjoy doing have a way of coming back into my life in a way that fits me better. So like just doing traditional stand-up at comedy clubs, I don't really think that I was, uh, I didn't really feel as comfortable in that space, especially with some of the other comedians and just the environment itself. But I love the storytelling aspect. I love making people laugh and having fun. So I'm, I'm pretty certain that the right opportunity will present itself you know, when the time is right. But in the meantime, thanks to your help, I've been, uh, you know, practicing my green thumb again. And one of the things that has really become clear to me is I just really like having a space that I enjoy living in and being in. So I've been focused on taking a little less time for what I can do outside of my home and just trying to create an environment that I enjoy being in, you know, for myself first. Excellent. So thank you so much for being here. It's been wonderful to catch up. You look fantastic, by the way. Uh, you look, thank you. You look, you've got a glow about you and a happiness, so I'm glad. for Ask Your Auntie. It's the segment of the show where readers can write in and ask their auntie anything they want. I cover a wide range of topics. If I don't know the answer, I'll go find somebody who does. This week, we have two questions that have come in. So let's get right to it. Uh, The first question was, Auntie, I have smoke stains from candles and weed smoking on my kitchen wall. How do I remove them? This is one I know well. The easiest way is to use trisodium phosphate. It's also known as TSP. 
TSP is a deep cleaning chemical that you can get at most hardware stores. It comes in two forms. The first is powdered or granules that you mix with hot water and the ratios are on the box. Then you put on a pair of protective gloves and use a sponge to wipe down the walls. Once you've cleaned off the stains, you rinse the walls with warm, clean water. The other option is to use TSP No Rinse, which is a liquid form of it, and once you clean off the walls, you just let it dry, and you're good. The second comes in through our email, and it's, Dear Auntie Vice, why is it that I, when I have a crush or attraction to someone, I am only turned on by them and only them? It wouldn't matter if Jason Momoa walked in butt-ass naked. I would have an eye only for the person I'm crushing on. It feels maddening. Am I going crazy or hyper-fixating? Signed, Confused and Sack. Confused and Sack, some of us do get very fixated on our crushes. If you tend to be the type of person who focuses intensely on a project or anything that you you really want to happen, whether it be a hobby or you're very goal-oriented in your career, the same thing can happen when it comes to relationships. You'll develop a crush on someone and you start to accentuate in your mind and perception of them the things you find sexiest about them and you don't see the same qualities that you find sexy in this person in other people. You build up a lot of expectation around connecting with this individual, and it can be frustrating if they don't reciprocate those feelings. It's one mode of attraction that some people have. If you are very frustrated by this and you're, the object you're crushing on is not responding to you, one of the things is to try directed masturbation and fantasy time, where you specifically look for erotica or pornography with people that are different than this individual who still might turn you on and focus on developing sexual feelings outside of this individual. And it can help with some of the sexual frustration and it can end some of the, the hyperfixation. It's, it's a hard place to be in. There's a lot of folks like you and... I hope your crush responds to it, but if they don't, just know there's hope on the other side, and you you can work on things like practicing romanticizing um, and sexualizing other people. I, I'm a big advocate of using erotica and, and pornography to help change some of our intense focus on one person. So I hope things get better, and thank you for writing in. If you have a question for Auntie Vice, you can write her at auntievice at fatchicksontop.com or drop me a note in any of my social medias. The DMs are open. And now, a moment of gratitude. I am grateful for a lot of things. I'm really grateful for being a person who was already in an environment that allowed me to have, you know, like financial consistency and, you know, kind of a regular life throughout COVID. I know so many people were just thrown into really tumultuous situations and I was able to avoid that. And I feel really, really grateful for that. I have to say, I mean, this, I am not trying to be a brown noser, but I'm just really grateful for you. You've been like one of the most consistent people in my life for the past two years and a driving force of encouragement and love and 
it's it's meant the world to me. And and also for Sharon, I mean, he showed up to help with queer space and, you know, really without him, the event wouldn't have been what it was. And you guys are just an awesome team and I really appreciate you. And, you know, I am, I am still working on other side projects that you regularly poke at me about, but just knowing that, you know, somebody believes in, you know, the things that I'm doing and the things that I'm working on means a lot, especially with being so isolated, you know, during this period. And for me myself, you know, I, I know we talked about the fact that I left social media behind, at least for the time being, been probably the best decision of my life in the past five years. I, it has been such a weight off of my shoulders to not have to live in that comparison world, especially as a performer and seeing what everybody else is doing and, oh, they're doing shows and I'm not doing anything and they're more successful than I am or they've reached the next level in their career. Not having that pressure on me has really benefited me. But at the same time, you really learn that social media is what connects a lot of people and out of sight, out of mind. And you've been one of the few people where out of sight hasn't meant out of mind. And I really, that means a lot to me. Thank you. I appreciate that. I love you. Gay. So gay. This has been an episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Fat Chicks on Top is produced and hosted by Auntie Vice. Audio production is by A Serious Production. You can find all information about Fat Chicks on Top at fatchicksontop.com and follow Auntie Vice at Auntie Vice on most social media.